what is the role of external reality in the formation of traumatic experiences and how much does this still determine the overcoming of the profound dysphoria that affects certain individuals? With a highly personal and original view on the functioning of the mind from a psychoanalytic perspective, Marion Holliner accompanies us in this episode through a reflection on the impact of catastrophic events on the lives of individuals and their descendants. Through her voice, we will encounter Diderot, Proust and Baudelaire, Grubrick, Simitis and Winnicott, the tragedy of Nazism and the memorable beauty of the vineyards along the Rhine. This episode is inspired by the book published in 2018 titled Psychoanalytic Studies on Dysphoria, the Fourth Accord in the Divine Symphony. Marion Oliner has been active in her private practice, teaching, supervising as a speaker and as a member of many committees, as well as in the governance of the New York Freudian Society. She is a member of the International Psychoanalytic Association and on the faculty of the New York Freudian Society, the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis and the Metropolitan Institute for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy. I am Gaetano Pellegrini, and this is Talks on Psychoanalysis, the IPA podcast that shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide. Please check the details of the episode to find the link to download the paper, and to stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. Enchanted materialism, euphoria. The issues surrounding dysphoria are best demonstrated by its opposite, euphoria, or the finding of lost time. The most memorable life-giving thoughts on memory were enunciated by Marcel Proust in his great work, In Search of Lost Time. He recounts the Celtic belief in the souls of those whom we lost, who are captive inside an inferior being. As he says, if chance brings us close to one of these objects, we liberate them from their spell. By being liberated by us, they have triumphed over death and come to live with us. Similarly, our own past might undergo a process that brings the past to life. According to Proust, it's a waste of our time to try to evoke it. All our intellectual efforts are useless. It is hidden outside its domain and its reach in some material object in the sensation that might emanate from this material object, of which we do not have an inkling. It depends on chance whether we will need it before our death or whether we will do not need it at all. Proust speculates that a visual image is not enough to bring the past to life. 
But when nothing remains of the past, after the death of people and the destructions of things alone, more frail but more vivacious, more immaterial, more persistent, more faithful, taste and flavor remain a long time, like the souls remembering, waiting, hoping upon the ruin of everything else to bear without bending on their almost intangible droplet the immense edifice of remembrance. In her book on Diderot, the Fontenay labeled this affirmative attitude enchanted materialism, le materialisme enchanté, and it is not difficult to imagine its effect, seduction. Unfortunately, it did not improve the esteem in which material reality was held in the work of psychoanalysis. There are two issues that deter the adoption of this optimistic view. One is the mysticism underlying the notion of this world of spirits. The other deterrent consists of the fact that a benevolent childhood experience enriches development and could be the cause of this optimism. Thus, the emphasis on calamities dominates the concern of psychoanalysis. The next section is diverse articles on external reality. Before I examine the effects of trauma, which is more specialized than the chapters in the book that explore other aspects of external reality, I shall give you a brief summary of the topics the book covers. It starts with hysterical features among children of survivors, that is, transmission of trauma by parents who want to spare their children the knowledge of their own history. The chapter concludes that children identify with the anxiety of their parents who try to conceal their own preoccupations. Next is a chapter on the Nazi hunger, the difficulty of some patients compelled to fight their parents' battles instead of taking advantage of the differences in generation. Chapter three discusses the difficulty in hating one's enemies this is due to the fact that the waging of war is dependent on not treating the enemy as human. In peacetime, there is no one who could serve as a suitable target for such ruthlessness. The next essay, The Root of War is Fear. The rest is history, discusses wars the smart ones and the dumb ones, in which fear and anxiety are realistic and not to be confused with imagined threats. 
This is followed by a chapter titled Life is Not a Dream. The importance of being real. It highlights the value attributed to being real using Puth's work and its relationship to reality as a guide. It was part of my discussion on bringing the past to life and not part of the book. The following chapter is a re-examination of Winnicott's use of the object, placing the emphasis on the object surviving the subject's imagined aggression. The last chapter examines the place of the frame in psychoanalytic treatment, which is unique because it is composed of a special relationship, sometimes merged between two individuals. A relationship which ideally should be analyzed at the end of psychoanalytic treatment. Misfortune and its aftermath. Often, pessimism reveals the ill effect on the self-image by the misfortune suffered by the individual. The most poignant example of this is the question that arises in a poem by Baudelaire titled, Henchman of Himself. Am I not the false accord? in the Divine Symphony. This line expressed how Baudelaire viewed himself. No further description is necessary for those like me who are familiar with this mood. The rest of you are lucky. Not being one of you, I had to overcome the effects of the destruction of the world of my childhood. It made me pay close attention to what was left and be grateful for it. It easily became confused with the need to be submissive. I consider the external world an important aspect of psychic experience. I shall describe this struggle in greater detail one to which Freud himself was not immune. The literature describes trauma as if it were a psychic hole, static and not helpful. My own experience was different. However, it took time to formulate a way that gives those memories a place in the structure of the personality where they might have a chance to come to light as personal history. For 60 years, I did not return to Germany, where my mother and I were born. But when I returned, it was the vineyard along the Rhine that confirmed that I too had a childhood and parents who came to life in that scenery. Although this happened late in my life, it diminished the power of the question, am I not the false accord in the Divine Symphony? The Divine Symphony 
It's the orchestra of the world from which the survivor feels excluded. Never having lived in it, survivors think of themselves as playing the wrong key. Until the day I recognize that inanimate objects like the view along the Rhine brought to life part of my childhood. According to the German analyst Ilse Kubitz, patients who suffer the effects of trauma need professional help for coming to terms with their being real events. I quote, because the traces left by the experience of extreme trauma in the memory of the persecuted are constantly being derealized by this dissociative work of defense. They are incapable of assuming the character of memories and hence the quality of belonging to the past. They may thus remain catastrophically imperishable. In other words, the normally beneficial division of the temporal continuum into past, present, and future is abolished in relationship to the era of the trauma. End of quote. Yet we know that the static quality of the memories attached to trauma can regain life. It is just not the most common view. The need for intervention by the therapist is not only the deep realization of the memories, but the unconscious self-blame attached to them. The French psychoanalyst Roussillon illustrates the dysphoria experienced by those afflicted. In the place of the illusion, I am the breast, there is an illusion at the origin of primary culpability. I am the evil and rests on a primary confusion between self and non-self. Roussillon stressed the resultant cut in subjectivity. This can be seen by those who take on the blame for whatever they are being accused of. I hinted that I was familiar with this defense. After two years in this country, I graduated from high school with high honors and four scholarships, including one by the Board of Education. When a stranger asked to speak to me about myself, I imagined him to be connected with the Board of Education. The following day, the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin published the story and a big photo on page three. My uncle became very upset. How could you make this public? 
I said that I didn't know that I was speaking to a journalist. And without my ever questioning the merit of his reaction in the hope of his sharing my pride, the blame and my bad feeling remained. Winnicott formulated those same thoughts more concisely. In psychoanalysis, as we know it, there's no trauma that is outside the individual's omnipotence. Winnicott added to the false accord portrayed by Baudelaire the image of grandiosity. The literature on traumatized individuals chooses to ignore this difficulty and tends to focus only on former victims. This belief may inspire therapists to restore the one who suffered to a better life. It does not take into consideration the possibility or likelihood that the former victims rely on their unconscious omnipotence and pride in their coping in this way. In, in this way, the therapists risk causing the patient to feel diminished, accused, or misunderstood. As I mentioned, the view of the Rhinananda, not where I was born, is the inanimate world that confirmed the life I had lost. And it is not fair to say that until that time I've been so deprived that it took an inanimate landscape like Pooh's taste of the Madeleine to bring the past to life. I was aware of the events that colored my past. I compared it to a sausage cut into slices and considered it adaptive to my rootless situation. But apparently the normal beginning that involved having parents was not part of my identity, nor for that matter having a birthplace. My focus was on how lucky I was with the help I was given and how well I did without a normal childhood. Once I was able to accept that I had been living a truncated existence, the knowledge enriched me in that I was more tolerant of my shortcomings. As can be seen from my memories, and the theories of those who try to understand this frame of mind, attacks on the individual's identity tend to come from inside, hidden from themselves, the world, often including the therapist. Roussillon used Freud's notion of memory traces that are imprinted as meaningless facts because they happen without any link to the individual. This notion is not helpful, even though it's widely accepted. A trauma cannot be meaningless and be remembered. 
It is remembered because it impacted on the person. It is segregated from much of the personality in order to prevent the individual from being overwhelmed. The problem of integration of trauma, a more encompassing theory of integration is needed to account for the meaningless impressions or segregated materials to have the potential for a relationship with the total personality and become personal history. How can a sausage, once it is sliced, ever become whole? How can a theory of trauma find a place for integration when it is based on the uniqueness of each event that triggered it? How can a perception of external reality be part of the inner world and bring the past to life? The fact that it can and does speaks to us of incomplete theorizing. Scientists are rightfully reluctant to follow Proust into his fairy tale world. And we don't need to because the American analyst, Lowell, postulated that personality organization can be built around levels of integration. It avoids the many ways negativity is usually expressed, such as slicing a sausage, splitting, denial, repression, auto-hypnosis, and many others. Since these emphasize discontinuities without links to the rest of the personality, they differ from the emphasis on Lowell's use of levels of integration. This is more nuanced as differentiation in that the memory of the trauma can be considered as living with us on a low level of integration. In the previous section, I showed the ways external reality impinges on our lives in order to highlight important ways we relate to the external world and how we could be changed by it. In this respect, as I mentioned before, Freud went so far as to state that at first external reality is the world that's hated. This, I believe, is at the root of the way external reality or the context has been treated in recent studies as necessarily undynamic. Nevertheless, in its earliest work, The Interpretation of Dreams, Freud attributed an important role to the previous time's residue for the understanding of the meaning of a dream. Furthermore, the dream work is said to aim at making dreams perceptible. This shows how Freud used the events of the previous day and valued the imagery that the dreamer accepts as real. 
the interweaving of reality and sleep do not shut out the world, but present it from a different angle. In this regard, Freud was unapologetic. This unapologetic stance to bring in the former day's residue to help with the meaning of a dream and the stress on perceptibility to make the experience of the dream image more vivid suggests that the issue of concreteness did not arise in this fundamental work on dreams. However, Kopisimitis published a careful description of the article Freud wrote to interpret the meaning of the statue of Moses by Michelangelo, which had a unique magnetic pull on him. His hesitation took many forms, including the span of time that elapsed, 12 years, to publish it, and also its subtitle, Wachstück, a risky undertaking, and the omission of the author's name. Studying its physical attributes, such as the position of the arms, convinced him that it depicts the calm after the storm and the mastery of passion. He was reconciled with this interpretation. Kupoisidis attributes to con the concreteness, her expression, of Freud's reaction to an ego ideal in his dealings with Jung, not to be carried away by passion, but to continue to work on his own ideas. Freud's method of examining the physical attributes of the statues and his delay in publishing the article show some awareness of his overlooking that the statue of Moses was part of the tomb for Pope Julius. Added to this selective blindness is the fact that God had told Moses that he would not see the promised land, both depicted a threat to Freud's optimism. Kubi-Semitis thought that Freud's sensitivity to the external aspect of a work of art was due to his early deprivation. These were caused by his childhood experiences of loss leading to discontinuities in his life. Only his discomfort makes us suspect that he himself was aware that he had, was not in touch with the source of his dread. The use of an instinct that binds and organizes. It was only later that Freud confronted the limitations he had imposed on himself when he mandated that the wish underlying the dream needed an agent, the entrepreneur, 
to give it content. When in 1920, he revised his instinct theory to include two overarching concepts, Eros and Thanatos, he postulated an instinct. Eros, whose energies aim to bind and organize, Lowald used this innovation to consider the drive to synthesize innate. Endowing Eros with motives, unlike the unconscious wish of the previous theory, which was pure energy, could include memories of trauma organized as a whole. Lowold undoubtedly imagined it segregated, segregated from the more dominant parts of the personality, omnipotence linked to survival. Thus, conscious memories of the events are no indication of the degree to which they play a part in the psychic reality of the survivor. In my case, not having a birthplace showed up later as a basic assumption about my identity. Before becoming aware of my truncated existence, other major assumptions dominated my consciousness. I tended to connect low moods to temporary disappointments. In this way, the drive to return to a state of oneness could be regarded as the striving of arrows. Thus, the low level of integration of trauma can be understood to have the potential to activate the innate integrative functions to become more compatible with the rest of the mind. This formulation of the process does not imply that the work is effortless and probably can only be partial when it concerns overwhelming harm or loss to the individual. However, it is useful for the interpretation of dreams and has been applied in this way. It lends itself to gradual integrations especially when it concerns personal history and its impact on the self. Although we have given drive theory short shrift lately, interpreting a dream involves the work that relies on the synthesis of formerly incoherent thoughts and images. The change in the theoretical foundation of this work, the change from the synthetic function being attributed to the ego to it being the property of an instinct with its own capital, enlarges its field of application, independent of the ego. Its innate energy is part of the dream work striving for greater cohesiveness. At the outset, the low level of integration is not a more benign state of mind, 
an event that is experienced as traumatic by definition is not available for easy integration. Many individuals who've been traumatized by their own parents have strong defenses against knowing how their parents distorted their reality. It seduced them into thinking that this made them special. In my experience, this is the most difficult resistance to overcome. Their lives improve when they accept the reality of their childhood. But any setback in their feeling special, successful, or good leads to an attack on themselves. Even though, as children, they were angry, they never expressed it, allowing their dysphoria to dominate their self-image. Their feeling special is worth the sacrifice they made for deserving it because it saves their parents. As I described above, seeing the scenery which evoked the memories of my childhood made me aware of the unnecessary distortion in that tacit, tacit assumption of myself without a childhood, including a birthplace. Perhaps the decision to miss the, the place again was the intermediary step in building the bridge that brought me closer to my personal history. I had paid my respect to the cruel fate my parents suffered by not visiting Germany. Now I was ready to face my own personal history. Perception of the current material reality plays an important role in the evolution of levels of integration. There are undoubtedly many links in the process, but frequently an ordinary perception may play the dominant role in stimulating the subsequent activity. I believe that to ignore or disparage the attention given to material objects means depriving the process of important components such as aging and growth. In his seminars, the late Jacob Arlo did not hesitate to add what he called the context of the session. Thus, he went beyond working with material reality to highlight additional circumstances if in his estimation the patient did not pay sufficient attention to a factor he considered important. Although also played close attention to the first and last sentence in a session. He attributed special meaning to them. He found that a session that was otherwise hard to understand gained its meaning in the last sentence. I consider the attention to the context as restoring the unity of the psychoanalytic situation. 
In his fundamental work on dreams, Freud distinguished between perceptual identity based on pleasure and perceptual identity based on thought. He considered the latter developmentally more advanced because the judgment is based on greater tolerance for unpleasure. Perceptual identity based on thought lends itself for action in situations of greater consequence. Perceptual identity based on pleasure connects us with the work of art, world of art, but also the forgotten past. This is the content of Pooh's great work. The reward is bringing loss, dead time, back to life. For this author, it had an intrinsic value, one deserving his devotion for life. This attitude, the materialisme enchanté, conveys delight, but also a reaction coming close to being bewitched. Freud must have experienced such a state of mind when he felt so drawn to revisit the statue of Moses by Michelangelo. Despite his taking his cues from the physical aspects of the statue, the interpretation of its meaning as portraying the calm after the storm avoided the issue of mortality for which there was an abundance of physical evidence. Had Freud permitted himself this connection, he would have applied it to the prohibition, prohibition sorry, against his seeing the promised land and his struggle with you and be depressed by it. As it was, his wish dominated his perception, even though he suspected that it was lacking the identity of thought. In a way of summary, different from the response to art, the application of Lowell's model of the mind enlarges the various domains and assigns them to degrees of integration. Since our focus has largely dealt with trauma, it is easy to imagine that a recent trauma resides at a low level of integration. Its low level segregates it from the most of the personality, even if it is a fertile ground for change. Potentially, however, the system can enlarge its boundaries and integrate within them greater awareness of one's personal history and agency. In the process, the need for omnipotence will have diminished and turn into greater acceptance because perception of historical context matters and contributes to the past coming to life in its original setting.
Thank you for your attention. <laughs>